Welcome to the Alabaster Jar, a weekly conversation where we take on current issues impacting women at the intersection of faith, theology, and ministry. We are pleased to offer Alabaster Jar as a podcast of Northern Seminary. In today's episode, our hosts, Dr. Lynn Kohick and Dr. Ingrid Farrow are joined by Dr. Katherine McDowell. Catherine is a professor of Old Testament at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and she is the author of The Image of God in the Garden of Eden, a book exploring creation, idolatry, and what it means to be created in the image of God. She is currently writing a book on the value of learning Hebrew and a second book on idolatry. Kathy is also a ministry leader, consultant, and conference speaker, and we are excited to welcome her to the podcast today. Welcome, Kathy. I am so excited to be talking with you again. And I'm going to say again, because we were next door neighbors when we both taught at Wheaton College. I mean, next door office neighbors. Right. Yeah, that's right. That was a little while ago. And I know it was a little while ago because your kids were toddlers then Mm -hmm. and they're not toddlers anymore. How does that happen, Kathy? I know. Very quickly, unfortunately. (laughs) Yes, they're both high school students now. Oh my goodness. And yet, uh, you and I'm going to say me. We just look the same. Yeah. You know, we just we're not going to we're not <laughs> yeah. going to go down that path. No, yeah, seriously, good. it's so good to to see you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate you guys asking me to speak with you today. Yeah. Well, we're so glad. I'm so thrilled to have you here because Kathy, your your work, your research has been so instrumental in my life. And and I'm telling you, in so many students' lives, too, as I've shared the things that so much that I learned from you about the image of God in the Garden of Eden, I've seen it transform people's lives. I've seen it actually transform families and relationships. So your work is so valuable. So could I ask you to first tell us a little bit about what led you into it? And, um, and also then, uh, also, we really want to hear about your new works. You've got two books. So uh, kind of start out at any of those places. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me know that people are, uh, that you're using it and that people are being impacted. I uh, That was one of the things I prayed for. Um, this was my dissertation, and I really wanted to work on something that um, not only would captivate my interests, but would really be a gift to the church as well as the academy. That was kind of uh, required, but I really wanted it to be a gift to the church as well. And so I took a course, I took a Genesis course with John D. Levinson at Harvard Divinity School. And I also took a course um, in the School of Arts and Sciences at Harvard with Irene Winter and Peter Machinist, two of my academic all-stars. Um, I, they ended up being my first and second reader, actually, on the dissertation. And um, they they did a course uh, jointly taught on iconography of the divine in Mesopotamia. And so it was through work that I did in those two courses, the Genesis course and the iconography course, that this topic uh, arose. And I did it, um, I worked on it for a seminar paper and then um, decided this is what I, there was enough there for a dissertation topic. So, And, and Kathy, can I ask you, yeah. when you were thinking about iconography um, and Mesopotamia, uh, just unpack those a little bit for us. Tell us what they are and why it mattered so much to you. Sure. Yeah. Well, it, it, along with the iconography was these rituals by which um, the, what, what the Bible calls idols. Uh, in, in the scholarly literature, we call them cult statues or divine statues. Um, but they they underwent a process. They weren't just built and then installed in a temple. They underwent 
a um, manufacturing process, but also a ritual kind of birth and vivification process. And when I was looking at them, I thought, oh, it's very interesting that this takes place in a garden setting, a royal garden, temple garden, temple garden, actually, temple garden setting. And I thought, oh, because humankind is made in a garden setting in Genesis, unlike the creation stories from the ancient Near East, human, human beings are not made in gardens. So I start, that's really what the question that started the pursuit was, why is why are Adam and Eve created in a garden? And as it turns out, there were um, more parallels than that, but just a lot of common features between the ways that um, idols were created and man, or images were created, manufactured, installed in a temple setting, and how humanity was created in the image of God installed in his sacred garden in Eden. Yes, and yet, obviously, there's some big differences. What might mm. be a big difference, right, that, that would distinguish the story in Genesis? What did you find? Yeah, so um, one of the distinct differences is that in these rituals from Mesopotamia, they believed that the statue actually became a manifestation of the god. But of course, humanity being made according to or in God's image according to His likeness, there's a special relationship defined by those terms. But we're clearly not gods ourselves. <laughs> no, as much as yeah. we want, you know, to tell our children yeah. that that's the case. Right, right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So now you're working on another book on idolatry right now. Yes, I'm getting ready to start that one because I've just finished the one on Hebrew. So um, this is going to be in, with University Press, and they have a series called Essential Studies in Biblical Theology. And the, the, the audience really, is, it's for those who um, may, not, may not be well acquainted with biblical theology. So it can be used for students, college students, seminary students, but we're really trying to bring biblical theology into the church. And so these a series of short paperbacks, it'll be about 60,000 words. Um, and I'm looking at, um, they want us to trace a theme. So each of the books in this series traces a theme from beginning to end of Genesis to Revelation. And so I'm looking at the theme of idolatry. And it's fascinating because it's really the flip side of image. There's so much um, relationship between the two, obviously. And so I'm going to be looking at Israel's idolatry, but alongside of each, within each chapter will be a look at kind of the, the quote, counter idol. In some cases, that's the Torah, you know, and, and then ultimately that's going to be Jesus himself. So Lynn, I actually will be, okay. with fear and trembling, getting into the New Testament. Well, I'm, and you know what? So I, I, I'm afraid, I think I lied at the beginning when I said, I'm not going to talk about the New Testament. I can't help it as you're talking about this, because Paul in Ephesians talks about idolatry and he talks about, uh, greed, greed yeah, and right. connection with that. And is that a theme um, that, or a connection that you also find in the Old Testament? Yes, the idea of idol idols other than statues, you mean? Yeah, and yes, yes, yeah. kind of that metaphor, so yes. to speak, or metaphorical understanding of idol. Yeah, yeah. actually, Ezekiel talks about that. Um, mm. And I'm going to paraphrase Ezekiel, but kind of our hearts being factories that produce idols. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is which is quite a fascinating comment that he makes there. Um, so yeah, even in the Old Testament, idolatry wasn't reduced to uh, physical statues, but there is indicate and that's the primary discussion about idolatry. But um, 
but yeah, it, it's well the Old Testament's well aware that idolatry is not confined to a physical image, but it can actually be things like you mentioned or Paul mentions greed, um, and ultimately, I think self <laughs> wow. is the biggest is the biggest idol. But anything that we want to replace God with. Where do you see that happening? Where do you see that happening in in our context today mm. in the in the church today? It's a great question, and um, I, I I have thought about this, but it, it's not that I have necessarily a new answer. It's kind of the answer that um, maybe someone even in the biblical period would have would have would have said. But um, you know, we we simply don't. We, we resist, or in my experience, we really resist the authority of God. So we really don't want to come under anyone else's authority. Um, we see authority as often as negative, as oppressive, and it can be, right? We certainly know that it can be, um, but not the case with God's authority. On the contrary, coming under the care of God and through obedience to Scripture there's a, a freedom in, uh, that you experience. It's kind of like, oh, this is what I was actually, the way that I was designed to work. So um, I, I do think that there is tremendous resistance um, to coming under God's care and God's authority because we simply want to be gods ourselves <laughs> in the language of Genesis 3, or we want to be kings ourselves in the language of judges, right? There was no king in Israel and everyone did what's right in his own eyes. So that's been a problem since the very beginning, wanting you, to be God ourselves. Yes, yes. And do you see um, do you see that working itself out differently in women's lives versus men's lives? I mean, I, I kind of thinking like idols, um, uh, well, I jokingly uh, talked about how your kids are getting older yeah. and I'm not right. You know, yeah, and yeah. so the youthful, um, I mean, I've, anyone looking at me is knows kind of thrown in the towel on that, but there are women who pursue, um, with their, with a lot of their identity mm -hmm. to always look young or have a particular body image mm -hmm. or, uh, maybe both men and women pursue, uh, wealth. Uh, maybe some women pursue, a happy family, or I'm just wondering if you've seen, like, what are some of the idols that maybe women in our culture, uh, our culture pushes mm -hmm. us towards? Yeah, all those things for sure. Um, one of the things I've noticed a lot lately, that may just be the time of year, but with with um, a lot of parents having kids that are graduating and moving on, at least parents my in my age group, um, it's very easy to to make idols out of our children. I think. Um, and I've been wondering with some of my friends, what on earth are they going to do when their children leave and go to college? Because their entire life is wrapped up in their children. And of course, we, we love our children. Um, but some, some women, sometimes it's easy for us to not have an identity apart from that. And um, of course, you'll always be a mom. If you have children, you're always a mom, right? And that's a key and wonderful part of our identity. But um, I think it's, it's, it's critical to be, if that's something that's a temptation for you, it's critical to be aware of where that line is. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think our children uh, can become idols for us. And then when they 
grow up and leave. Um, I, I understand missing them. I know I'll miss my children when they grow up and leave the house, but um, I don't want my world to fall apart. It shouldn't fall apart. Yeah. When they oh, leave. That's so, yeah, boy, that, that is very powerful. Yeah. And also, just going further on that, I know one of the things that so impacts whenever I use your material and, and just the rest of the Telficary and all the other information about what it means to be an idol of God, to be God's image bearer as being his representative, mm -hmm. and with each of us having dignity and great value. And uh, so... Have you seen that impact? I know especially women, and I've seen men who've had certain views of women change their views mm -hmm. because of this understanding and even dealing with racial issues. I mean, it has such massive implications. Yeah. What kind of applications have you seen with your students and, and uh, in your life with people you've shared this with? Yeah, that's, um, you know, it, it is something I kind of joke about. I could never, I could spend the rest of my life working out the implications of Genesis 1 to 3. Yeah. Uh, but one of my colleagues teases me that I'm, I'm never, I never get past the third chapter of the Bible. But um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, yeah, and actually, right if you, you want to summarize for some of our uh, listeners who haven't had the chance yet to read, just maybe summarize real quick how you're understanding image and then uh, those implications. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think um, really we tend to think of it or, you know, in my, um, you know, random polling of people <laughs> and in what I've read, we tend to think of being made in the image of God as a, as functional. It means that we can do things or we think certain ways or, or our creative side, you know, we're creative like God's creative. Um, I think those are implications. Uh, results of being made in God's image. But the, the language there, if we look at Genesis 5, 1 to 3, where the only other place where that language appears together, um, it's in the context of sonship or parent-child. And so I do think that Genesis 1 is redefine, is defining the divine human relationship in terms of kinship and family, and particularly um, father, son, or parent, child. And, and I tended to stick with the father, son language in the book because the sonship in the Old Testament carries all the theological freight. And we kind of lose that if we use the term parent. Um, but what's so exciting is image and likeness is applied to women as well as men. So all that theological freight is, is there for the women, not just the men. Um, so I tended to keep the biblical language and then footnote, this is for women too. Um, but to me, that was extremely eye-opening and really transformative to understand that right off the bat, the very first chapter of the Bible is defining the divine human relationship in terms of kinship over and against the way it was defined in the surrounding cultures, which was primarily um, service, and certainly with Adam and Eve, we see they serve God and they worship God. But if you look at other creation stories, like for Mesopotamia, the, it's called the Enuma Elish, humanity was created as an afterthought to do this um, arduous, laborious, unappealing task of building and digging um, that the lower caste of the gods didn't want to do anymore. They were just worn out. And so they said, oh, well, let's create humanity and give them that job. And there's just really nothing dignifying about that. And to say that, no, you were not created as an afterthought and you were not, not created as slaves, which is really what humanity was in um, the Mesopotamian stories, but instead you're created to be part of God's family, 
to be uh, son and daughter. And that is a that was would have been a completely completely revelatory idea in its original context, especially for an audience, assuming the original audience were the Hebrews that came out of Egypt with a history of slavery, right? They were slaves, their parents were slaves, their grandparents were slaves. And for God to say, you know, you're you're you are intended, you were designed to be part of my family, to be my child. Like what better metaphor or analogy could God have chosen? You know, we see a lot of family metaphors in the Bible, but the parent, especially if you have children, you know how much you love them and how you do anything for them. And for God to use that language to describe his relationship with humanity was really quite profound. Yeah. Have you, uh, Ingrid, did you, uh, when you were asking that question, you were talking about how it has really shaped both men and women in your class. Is there a particular story that came to your mind um, as people have reacted to uh, Kathy's ideas? Yeah, there's one, one in particular pops into my mind, and that was a uh, student who was um, a very strict complementarian. And, you know, I, I think our audience might be familiar with that term, but he was married and had mostly had daughters. And, um, and he felt that he had a particular role. And he was even a little offended to be having me as a woman, as his professor. And, uh, but he, he stuck it out because it was a course that he needed. And, uh, but at the end of the semester, he invited me over for dinner with him and his wife. And he said that he wanted to hear more about this image of God stuff. <laughs> and, and he was about to, um, he and his family were about to move to um, Bulgaria to, uh, to be a pastor in a church that was one of the John MacArthur churches. And so, again, it was, you know, particular theological view. And a few years later, he came back on a, to, to the States and asked to meet with me. And he said that, it, that what, what we had talked about and his understanding of Genesis 1 and 2, that the male and female together were created with dignity and that God, what, however we treated any other human being, God takes personally. Yeah. You know, and, and of course, we hear Jesus' words, whatsoever you've done to yeah, right. the least, you've done to me. And so that, that concept of, of how God views male and female, mm -hmm. he said, just kept working on him. Mm -hmm. And he said he, he came to realize that some of his concepts of masculinity uh, had been embedded because he had grown up in an abusive home where his father said, you know, be a man. And, yeah. you know, so manhood had become associated with being tough and, yeah. and emotionless and all that. And he said, God started to heal his heart mm. as he realized God's love first for him, yeah, but beautiful. also for his wife and yeah. his daughters. And he began, he said, to radically change. And he said his, you know, it, uh, of course, it caused tremendous conflict in his church because he started believing that women should have a role in the church also. And, uh, but he said, you know, uh, that his wife now says she has a brand new husband and a brand new marriage wow. and a new father for his children, for his that's daughters. A, that's remarkable. Praise God for that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nice. I, I rem well remember being at a restaurant with my mom um, and I really love my mom. I have a close relationship with her. We go out together often. And a, this was a couple of years ago, but a waiter was very rude to her. And I was so offended. I'm like, how dare he speak to my mother like that? But, you know, I was immediate. I, I, I thought first, like, oh, I'm going to complain. I'm going to talk to the manager. And then I, I felt very convicted because I thought who, or I felt the Lord was speaking to me. Who knows what this man has been through? 
who knows what kind of day he has had. And he too is created in God's image, even though he wasn't, you know, acting very nicely at the time. And I, it, it really has transformed the way I see everyone. And so I ended up, and, and I use this example because I'm not typically, I mean, I tip like a normal way, but, you know, I don't want to leave the impre- false impression that I'm so generous. But I ended up writing a note on the receipt and leaving a very large tip because I, and I know that was directly a result of my study and, and God changing my perception of this waiter who is made in the image of God. Um, and then just real briefly, my favorite story of all was with my son. When he was little, we were in the car and he noticed a lot of homeless folks. And of course, I talk to my kids about what I'm studying all the time. <laughs> and so he um, he really wanted to put together some bags of snacks and water bottles for some of these men. And uh, so we were driving up, you know, red light, and there was a man on the side with a sign who he really needed something. And so my son rolled the window down and he asked him if he would like the snack. So he, the man was very happy to receive them. My son gave them. And as the light turned green, my son leaned out the window and yelled, have a good day, sir. And then he just bowed his head and he couldn't suppress the smile. He doesn't, Ben doesn't like to express a lot of emotion, but he couldn't resist because, and it wasn't because he had done some righteous act. I think he in that moment experienced what it was to be made in God's image and to live that out. And then to speak like in a dignified way to another human being also made in God's image. And it was a really beautiful moment, you know, especially as a parent to see your child realize that and to to live it out in that moment. And so it, it definitely has changed um, how I see everyone. You know, I remember talking to one of my African-American students, a young woman, and talking about us being sisters in the Lord. And she began to cry because she, she said, I've just never had a faculty member or a white faculty member speak to me in that way. And she, she didn't have a bad experience at, at the school, but she, you know, just to think of us as family is family in the Lord. And um, yeah, it's, it has uh, had a significant impact on me as well. I'm really thankful to the Lord for that. Yeah, beautiful. And Kath, I mean, this couldn't be more timely as we have so much contention in the public square and so much um, public bickering yeah. and yeah, all, all of that. Um, have... Um, You've mentioned two excellent stories that can give us some examples of of how to internalize um, this this teaching of us being made in the in the image of God. Um, where do you think that that we've gone wrong? Why are we not living into this more and more? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, and I don't mean to sound too unoriginal, but I just think we're completely self-absorbed, <laughs> right? We're completely self-absorbed. And I, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, for sure. Um, we're so easily offended. We are so uh, largely unwilling to, you know, it's kind of like Christianity 101, right? Like consider the needs of others right. before you consider your own. And for you know, some reason, that's really hard for us to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and I, I was thinking of the stories that you told. Also, there was um, 
there wasn't a conversation about right or wrong. Is that, well, or, or even let me yeah. let me go beyond that. Your son didn't ask the homeless man why he was homeless. Uh, there may have been habits in his life uh, that were um, not edifying. You know, in, in other words, and and I'm I'm kind of sounding like a shrew here. I'm trying to sound like a shrew. I'm trying to play the the devil's advocate, yes, the person yes, that says, yes, well, why right. would I help that guy? Right. Because he's he's made bad choices. Or why, you know, even if the waiter had a bad day, that doesn't excuse the way he talked to my mom. And so I guess that does get back to the question of selfishness, maybe, right? And, and uh, maybe we want to see um, our own form of justice done or yeah. always being right or the need to be right, then we couch it in the language of truth. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I'm yeah. kind of just yes. puzzling with you on this. Yeah. But. And I, I think too, like having an increased awareness of, in many ways, we're no different from that person. Like we may have made different choices. We may be in a different socioeconomic class or ed different education or whatever, but in terms of, you know, perhaps they made some really bad choices and that's why they are where they are. But you know, the more we understand God's mercy and grace to us, the more gracious we become. That's beautiful. And so said. I do think that working on these early chapters in Genesis have had that kind of transformative effect too. I mean, I, you know, as a student, as a, as a, a seminary student, I was kind of hard nosed, to be honest. Like, don't bother me. I want to get my work done. I worked really hard, nose to the grindstone all the time. I, I would say I wasn't. I was not a very compassionate person. And through a series of trials in life, but also through deeply engaging the scripture, um, God has changed that mm. significantly. You know, that's that's what he does for us. <laughs> yes. And so really understanding um, what God has done for us makes helps to make us more. And I would say if you're if you if you're a Christian and you're not very compassionate, it's probably because you don't really understand, you're not, you don't really understand what God's done for you. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I don't want to leave um, Genesis uh, one and two without also talking about three. Yeah. Eve's role in three. Yes. Uh, and, and the blame that she and all women after her sometimes carry when we speak about uh, sin yeah. and, and, and all of that and the whole, um, how 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 do you understand Eve's role in the story and the image of God that we have mm -hmm. uh, at the end of Genesis mm -hmm. three through the rest of Scripture? Yeah. So these were not on the questions that y'all sent me. <laughs> I know. You are a deep thinker. I have, of course, thought about this. Like I didn't, I didn't write about it, but I've, I've thought about it. So, you know, it, you know, there's, there's, there's no, no way around. Eve's guilty, right? Eve's guilty for, for um, succumbing to temptation. And, and and sometimes I'd heard I've heard people say, "Oh yeah, it was Eve's fault," and um, you know she should have listened to her husband. And yes, yeah, she's absolutely at fault. But the scripture's testimony is also that Adam was at fault, even if I can't parse that out exactly in Genesis three. 
I mean, God judges them both in Genesis 3, and, and he speaks both to Eve and to Adam. So even though Genesis 3 may not give me all the details I'd like uh, to know, I think that certainly the chapter, God's response, as well as the whole council of Scripture, makes it clear that they were they were both equally guilty. <laughs> so I'm not getting Eve off the hook. I'm just not getting, you know, not, I, I don't think she was any more at fault. Uh, even though I understand people do read that and do get that out of the story, I think there was something that we're not told that, um, yeah, just based that, on God's response. That's right. That's right. And, and I think that's really such a good way to look at it because women often don't see themselves as fully made in the image of God because Eve is thrown up right away. Yeah. And your point is, yeah, Adam also sinned. The scripture is so clear. Yes on that. And God uh, judges them both, and God showers mercy on them yeah, both. Right. Do you have a final word um, as we're coming to the end of our time together, a final word for the women who are, are listening from your study uh, that maybe you haven't yet said or you'd like to reemphasize from your study on Genesis? Just one thing, okay. <laughs> There's so many things. But I, I would say um, one of the things that I would want them to really think about and meditate on is, is this language of um, image and likeness, which is, again, kinship language, uh, sonship language, parent-child language. We, we get the, the metaphor is filled out as you go through the Old Old and New Testament, the children of God, like, oh yeah, we know that language from the New Testament, but it's actually there from the very beginning that this is the relationship above all relationships for which you were created. And so, um, you know, this is the this is the one that I would encourage you to really spend time understanding. It it will, as as Ingrid's testified, as I have testified, like it will change you. It really will change you. Um, you'll you'll grow in knowing the Lord, but it will impact your family, your relationships at at all the various places um, in which you are engaged with other people. Um, so, yeah, that I guess that's what I would say. Oh, thank you so much, Kathy. I want to remind those listening of the title of your book. Uh, the Image of God in the Garden of Eden. That's at Eisenbrands. Do you? published by Eisenbronze. Is there another uh, book that uh, tells that similar story? Well, there, there's a brief article that's in uh, that came out of the Wheaton Theology Conference several years ago. It's in a book published by InterVarsity Press called um, The Image of God in an Image-Driven Age. And so I have an essay in there which kind of summarizes some of these main points and ends with on a very practical note about what does it mean to live as a as an image slash child of God. Um, but I, I am working on some uh, putting this in a shorter book, kind of lay accessible, more accessible format. Um, yeah, that'll be great. I would love. Yes. I look forward to yeah. that. Encourage uh, our listeners. To either go with the uh, Eisenbrand's revised dissertation uh, <laughs> and a dictionary. Now I would need a yeah. dictionary right next to it, or or do the um, image of God in an image-driven world um, by uh, was that InterVarsity? Did you say InterVarsity Press? Yeah. Yep. yep. 
I, that that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And we look forward to your future books too and thank you. all of your work. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys. You're very welcome. Thanks for having yeah. me today.